This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What? Welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kearns. Episode 15, The Lindisfarne Gospels. Of all the symbols of Anglo-Saxon culture, the Lindisfarne Gospels are probably the most enduring. Their ornate decoration is often shown off when people try to counter the old term Dark Age by offering an example of the kind of intricate and beautiful artwork that this so-called Dark Age produced. Given this prominence, I wanted to dedicate a short episode specifically to the Lindisfarne Gospels, so that when you see those pictures that they often use in books about Anglo-Saxon England or articles, or even if you see the, the Gospels themselves, you'll have some knowledge of what they are, where they come from, and how they were made. The book, called the Lindisfarne Gospels, is, as its name would indicate, a Gospel book. That is, it's a copy of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It contains more than just these texts, though. It also contains copies of letters by St. Jerome and Eusebius, which discuss the benefits of reading scripture, as well as a copy of St. Jerome's preface to the Gospels from his Latin translation of the Bible. Besides these, it also contains various tables listing the Gospel readings for different feasts of the liturgical year. We can conclude then the book was meant to serve some liturgical purpose as a source for gospel readings. A fact it also explains why it was so luxuriously decorated. It was meant to serve a ceremonial role. But who created it, and when? As the name given to it by later academics suggest, the book was associated with the church at Lindisfarne. This was, if you will recall, the island bishopric founded by St. Aidan during the reign of King Oswald and which became especially famous as the seat of the cult of St Cuthbert. As for the specific individuals responsible for the book, we have to look to a late 10th century colophon that was added after the book had moved to Chesterley Street by a monk named Aldred. A colophon is a brief statement at the start or the end of a book giving information about its creation. When Aldred added his colophon to the end of the book, he wrote it in both Old English and Latin. In this colophon, he identifies four men as responsible for various parts of the book. Eadfrith, Bishop of Lindisfarne, is credited with writing and decorating it. And Ethelwald is credited with binding it. A hermit named Bilfrith is credited with decorating the manuscript. And Aldred himself is credited with glossing it. For dating the book, Eadfrith then is the key, since he is the one who actually produced the text. The problem is, though, we don't know exactly when Eadfrith became Bishop of Lindisfarne, but we do know that he died in 721, since the book reflects the wealth which came to Lindisfarne following the establishment of Cuthbert's cult there, 
then we should probably date the Gospels to the period after Cuthbert's death in 687. Thus, the Gospels were probably produced between 687 and 721. The Gospels are not the only book produced at Lindisfarne. The scriptorium there produced several Gospel books, which travelled across England and even to the continent, including the Durham Gospels, the Ectonach Gospels, and possibly also the Lichfield Gospels. All of these are marked by their ornate decoration, which fuses Irish and Anglo-Saxon art styles. But of all these books, the Lindisfarne Gospels are the most ornate. The expense that went into the book is incredible. It's estimated that it took about 10 years to make. Its main material was vellum. Vellum, along with parchment, was the main type of writing material used in Anglo-Saxon England. The two are very similar, but they can be distinguished by the fact that parchment was made from the skin of various animals, while vellum was made specifically from calf skin. These materials were best suited to the English climate. Paper hadn't yet reached Western Europe, and papyrus, the writing material most common in the Mediterranean, would quickly rot in the wet climate of Northern Europe. Animal skin was then ideally suited to the needs of Northern scribes. The Lindisfarne Gospels in total used about 150 calfskins to create its 516 pages. The book contains 90 different shades of colour. Most of these were produced locally, using various combinations of local minerals, plants and animal products. Some, such as indigo, which was extremely expensive and difficult to produce in England, were imported from the Mediterranean. Gold was also used, but only in very small amounts. All of this means that the book was enormously expensive and time-consuming to produce, and was created with an appropriately worthy purpose in mind. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The art is probably the most frequently discussed part of the book. A lot of people, when talking about Anglo-Saxon art as represented by the Gospels, say it looks an awful lot like Celtic art. As already mentioned, this is partly due to the unique style of Lindisfarne, which is sometimes called Hiberno-Saxon for its fusion of Irish and Anglo-Saxon influences. One of the main features of this insular art style, if you remember insular as an adjective here refers to things originating in Britain and Ireland, and is derived from the Latin for island, is the heavy use of interlace. This refers to the knot-like patterns that you'll usually find on things that claim to be Celtic. In fact, interlace was a common feature of both Celtic and Germanic art from the migration period onwards. A key difference between Celtic and Germanic interlace is that Anglo-Saxon and Norse artists often turned the winding lines into bodies of various creatures, both real and mythical, while Celtic artists tended to use interlace mainly as abstract decoration. In the Lindisfarne Gospels, we find a mix of both of these approaches. Just as a quick aside, the dense webs of interlacing animals typical of Anglo-Saxon and Norse art reflect a love in both cultures for riddles. 
it's not immediately clear when we look at something like the Lindisfarne Gospels that the interlace is anything other than decorative. But upon closer inspection, we find that our initial impression was wrong, and it is in fact an animal. The effect is similar to that of Old English riddles or Old Norse kennings, where we are given some features of a thing and then left to figure out for ourselves what that thing is based on the initial details. The Lindisfarne Gospels ornamentation extended beyond just its contents. Originally, it also had a leather cover, which tradition in the community of Cuthbert claims was decorated with jewels by a hermit named Bilfrith. According to a later historian of the community, Simeon of Durham, this Bilfrith had originally been a goldsmith who became a hermit and created the cover as an act of devotion. Sadly, this cover is now completely lost, since at some point in the history of the community it was stolen by Vikings. Nevertheless, the Gospels were a prized possession of the community, and when the monks left Lindisfarne to escape repeated Viking attacks, they took the Gospels with them as they searched for a new home. They wandered for seven years, until settling finally at Chesterler Street. It was here that in the late 10th century, a monk named Aldred added his own contribution to the Gospels. As mentioned already, he wrote a colophon for the Gospels explaining their history. In it, he also included himself as the man who glossed the text. A gloss is a specific kind of annotation, usually made either in the margins or between the lines, that explains the meaning of a word or the significance of a word choice. Aldred glossed the entirety of the manuscript, offering in effect a translation of the Gospels into Old English, one of the earliest ever produced. The purpose of glossing a text is hotly debated. Some scholars suggest that it indicates a decline in the ability to read Latin. Others suggest it was a study tool to help learn Latin, and yet others suggest that it was a way to help readers find their place in the text. Probably all of these are somewhat true. Whatever the reason for the gloss, it was the final stage of development for the manuscript as we have it today. The Gospels' subsequent history after this point is somewhat obscure. They seemingly remained with the community of Cuthbert through their move from Chesterler Street to Durham in the 11th century. And as far as we know, it remained with them until the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII in 1539. From there, the Gospels, along with other relics and manuscripts stolen from the church, went into the hands of collectors. Luckily, the Gospels ended up with Robert Cotton, first baronet of Connington, who was an avid collector of old manuscripts, and the man we have to thank for the preservation of over 90% of all Anglo-Saxon manuscripts. Fortunately, the Gospels survived the fire at his library, um, somewhat ominously named Ashburnham House, which destroyed many irreplaceable items. And from there, they went to the British Museum in 1753, and then to the British Library when that was created in 1973. Today they are still there, but there is a powerful desire to have them returned to the northeast, where they are prized as symbols of the rich Hiberno-Saxon culture that emerged in the Kingdom of Northumbria during its Golden Age. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. As always, I've been your host, Tom Kearns. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would like to request that you leave a like or a positive review or whatever it is on whatever platform you use, since it really helps us to get exposure and attract more listeners. We also now have a Facebook page, so if you search for us on Facebook, 
And if you want to get updates on new episodes, you can always leave a like there, which would also be extremely appreciated. But that's all for this week. So once again, thank you for listening. And I've been your host, Tom Kearns. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.